0: Declassify, verb meaning to officially declare information or documents to be no longer secret.
1: In the art world, there's always more than what meets the eye. I'm Parker,
0: and I'm Georgia,
1: and this is Declassified.
0: We're your hosts, here to uncover stories, truths, and other clues to solve the mystery of success in this complex industry.
1: Access lies at the heart of our mission. We amplify as many voices as we can,
0: Featuring artists, collectors, curators, advisors, historians, and entrepreneurs listening as they tell us what it's like to walk in their shoes. Now Declassified, we are very, very excited to have the incredibly accomplished and inspired filmmaker Debbie Wish with us today. Debbie is taking time out of her whirlwind film festival tour for her new feature The Art of Making It to speak with us. And for that we're so grateful. Thank you. The Art of Making It?
1: Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, Debbie, The Art of Making It is your second feature-length documentary about the art world coming three years after the massively successful launch of The Price of Everything, which, as an aside, quite frankly, blew my mind. The Price of Everything follows the careers of several contemporary artists and influential figures in New York's art scene, and question our understanding of art as a commodity, art as an expression, value, time, and in my opinion, the most important, art as inspiration. In The Art of Making It, the lens is turned towards emerging artists who tell the stories of their success and failures and whose work and their work to navigate the volatile waters of the art world. The Price of Everything was picked up by HBO before it even premiered at Sundance and earned global distribution in an Emmy nomination. The Art of Making It has been selected to show at 11 film festivals this year alone and is garnering great reviews. I have watched both films and can't wait for you all to watch.
0: Along with producing these substantive and beautiful films with wishful thinking productions, Debbie has uh, has had a beyond successful career in marketing. She's lent her expertise to international luxury brands, cultural institutions, art galleries and museums, as well as the directors boards at the Cantor Arts Center and Anderson Collection at Stanford, shout out, um, the Guggenheim Museum, the Jewish Museum, the Lincoln Center Film Society, and the American Jewish Committee. And these aren't even all the things. So if you can't tell, Debbie is crazy accomplished, crazy interesting, and we're beyond excited to have her on the pod today. Thank you guys for having me. It's an honor to be here.
1: Absolutely. Well, how is your day going so far?
2: I mean, I'm in Manhattan sitting in my hot pink office, looking out the window, mm-hmm. the sky's blue. I'm happy. Um, exactly. <laughs> working on a lot of festivals in the coming weeks and just kind of one foot in front of the other, getting things done. So this is a nice break.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining us. And I know the weather today in New York is gorgeous. I feel like the cold weather is finally leaving us, which is a blessing. Winter has been too long. But um, to get in kind of the meat of our conversation for you as you know declassified is each episode is grounded in a simple single question and our central question for you today is how can media impact rather how can media expand the impact of art. Obviously that's a big question so let's start with your own experience and then open up as we go you're a very accomplished filmmaker so could you tell us a little bit more about your most recent projects the price of everything and the art of making it for those who haven't had the chance to watch.
2: Um- I'm gonna start with the impact filmmaking can have on Mm -hmm. art because I think it's profound and Mm -hmm. fascinating. And it's the reason why I shifted my career into filmmaking. I didn't wanna become a filmmaker. I wanted to make a film about the art world because it felt very sort of elusive and exclusive and elitist and separate. Mm -hmm. And I think that good film has the opportunity to pull back the curtain and reveal a way oh, the, the world in a way that you're not going to get out of a news story or an article or a book. You can literally show what's really going on. And I was fascinated by the art world because first my mother's um, an architectural designer and I grew up in a family where art and design were very much a part of our world and very much sort of the prison through which I traveled and read and studied. It was always kind of what's the impact of art on our world. And I knew about things. I knew how boards worked. I knew how museums worked. I knew how, you know, schools worked. I grew up in Canada, where is that there's a more socialist approach to the arts and education. So people didn't make choices Kind of based on socioeconomics. You could go study art or art history, and your parents weren't like, How am I going to monetize that degree? But I was kind of fascinated by how little people knew, even people who were highly educated, who had been successful, because they didn't grow up with kind of exposure and access. They didn't even know how to walk into a gallery. So when we started making the price of everything, and I sort of started working on that and connected with um, a woman named Jennifer Stockman, who at the time was the president of the Guggenheim board. And then we brought in Nathaniel Kahn, who had done this beautiful film about his father, um, my called My Architects, about his father, Louis Kahn. And if you haven't seen the film, I highly recommend it. But we weren't like, oh, let's become filmmakers. We were like, let's make a film that pulls back the curtain on the art world and sort of shares our access and information And gets more people asking tough questions and experiencing it and maybe being a little less fearful of it and then when i made the art of making it it sort of emanated from what when you make a film and are the documentaries these two documentaries are what's called verite which is mean you you get a camera and you start following characters you kind of cast it and start following and you don't really know what you're going to get it's not like doing a biopic on a dead athlete or musician where it's like there's a beginning middle and end and you can play with structure but ultimately the story's there our stories weren't there we had to craft the story but we knew with the price of everything we wanted to kind of show the relationship between art and money and we had about a hundred hours of footage ninety nine like ninety eight (laughs) 0.5 ended up (laughs) on the cutting floor. And then you end up with a 90 minute film, which is sort of the rule for a documentary. And what ended up on the cutting floor in that film were art students, you know, sort of emerging artists. It was a little shiny and sexy, which sells well, but it doesn't necessarily get to like the heart of it. Like, why would anyone want to become an artist? You know, you get a terminal degree from Yale or Cal Arts or the, school at the Art Institute of Chicago. And even with those degrees an MFA from one of those schools, the chances of making it, whatever that means, are less than 5%. So it was sort of like, what are people thinking? How are they doing it? And then sort of when, as we started rolling the camera, you realize, oh my God, and they're borrowing money on the same terms as someone who's getting an MBA from Stanford, that's just crazy. And so like, My interest in all of this in terms of the art world was just sharing it and opening it up and kind of like there's so many blurry lines and trying to make things more transparent and accessible. And I guess my ultimate um, goal is just to engage more people in the value of art beyond its commercial value, what it does for communities and countries and mental health and focus and you know, there's so many things that art does beyond look nice on a wall. So, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I sort of answer the question. I think that film has the opportunity to show in a way that other mediums don't.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I also just think hearing about your films directly from you has like, that's been so interesting to me because watching The Price of Everything, I watched it freshman year of college, And it sort of showed me that there were all of these roles in the art world and there were all of these uh, like pathways that you can go forward and all these complexities that I didn't even know existed. Um, And then uh, watching the art of making it recently, just I think, especially with what Parker and I are trying to do now with Declassified 2, it just felt so important that some of those stories are told um, on this larger scale. And I think you really are are doing that and being able to engage more people in these kinds of conversations through um, such a, I think, like truthful but also very um, entertaining and engaging medium. Yeah um, I, mean,
2: I think if you make a film and we can get into this more but a lot of documentaries especially now when things are going straight onto streaming services mm-hmm. you're not as many people going into theaters and kind of I believe that our hearts synchronize when we experience something together. You're mm-hmm. sitting in a movie theater, mm-hmm. you're sitting at a baseball game and we're kind of side by side with our popcorn and something magical happens that doesn't necessarily happen when you're in front of your television or computer, mm-hmm. God forbid, streaming something <laughs> like that. So I'm extremely committed to pounding the pavement and going all over the country and all over the world To show the film and it sparks a lot of conversations that touch on all aspects of the art world. And I think one of them that's particularly interesting to younger people is how many jobs exist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, We were talking about a dealer, David Kordansky, who's this brilliant dealer who has an incredible gallery in LA and also in New York, and he was taught by Charles Gaines who's sort of a renowned professor at CalArts, and he's in the film, The Art of Making It. And David said, when he graduated, he's like, mm, I'm never gonna paint as well as everyone else. And he had an MFA, so he opened a gallery. You know, and there's people like me, I can't paint. I know I'm good at marketing and communicating, and I like speaking and talking to people and hearing their stories. And I didn't want to have a gallery or something like that, but I wanted to be around creative people. And I wanted to be kind of helping others have access to these worlds, especially kids who didn't grow up in families where it might've been something that was woven into their fabric of their lives. But like what art means besides this sort of weird commodity, which seems to capture more headlines than someone painted a mural in a you know, a neighborhood and it helped revitalize it.
0: Yeah, that's so true. I think that really um, kind of makes me, I I was thinking about this in The Price of Everything and also in The Art of Making It and from everything you're just saying is the question of audience, because I think with your films, of course, they appeal to people who are already interested in the art world, people who are already working in the space. I actually wonder how people who are already working in the space, especially the spaces that are kind of come off as like more exclusive, um, in your films, like how they feel after watching kind of their peers on a screen like that. Um, but I would love if I could just hear from you exactly what your kind of audience, um, your ideal audience would be for these films. Um, and you said you're going to travel around with them. So hopefully it's a big and broad and global one and Parker and I will help you with that. Um, but yeah, I would just love to hear kind of who your um, envisioning like sitting in front of this, um, in front of these films? Okay. So that
2: is a very good question. First of all, we've probably done 20 festivals already. Mm -hmm. We probably have like another 20. Mm. Um, and I can get into why that's important, but to me, the audience, listen, I care most about people your age because you're making decisions right now that are gonna impact career paths. And whether you become a doctor, a lawyer, a a filmmaker, whatever you decide to do, art can be a part of your life. And I think it's important to know about it. Um, I think that in many ways, whenever we're traveling with the film, you're always gonna capture the art community. People wanna hear about themselves. But it's almost more important to reach people who aren't in the art world or aren't sort of exposed to art or looking at art as a uh, possible profession. Um, we don't, I'm not the kind of filmmaker, and I actually am sort of appalled by algorithms and how they dictate content because I think it's counterintuitive to creativity. I don't think we'd have filmmakers like Quentin Tarantino or Martin Scorsese if someone was just looking at algorithms and the way a lot of programming is dictated right now. Mm -hmm. I kind of like fearless content and just kind of go for it and be honest and be truthful and kind of shine a light on something that needs a little attention. So I, I probably am completely impractical when I say I kind of don't really care who the audience is other than I think it's really good to reach younger people. And the films, th- this film, it hits a psychographic group. It hits people who are interested in culture and education and film. But you know we haven't filmed, we haven't done a screening in a movie theater that's sort of open to the public yet like a festival's already a selected audience. And when you're doing a screening, we're doing a screening next month at SF or we're doing a screening, you know, um, Carche has been a wonderful sponsor of the film and we're doing screenings like at Soho House or um, Crosby Street Hotel, you're getting a selected audience, mm-hmm. like a little pre-curated. So, I just want people to see it and to talk about it and kind of to have these safe spaces at the q and where they can ask the cast anything and nothing's off limit because that's where big ideas and big shifts happen. It's not when everyone's kind of walking on eggshells worrying about what's ahead or behind of them.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think with such like a, a expanded audience in mind, a lot of the stories that are shared in both of the films are things that even students of art history don't have access to. Um, mm-hmm. Even for the podcast itself, the idea was inspired by a conversation that George and I had with a contemporary artist mm-hmm. who was like, wow, like why have we never seen this or experienced this or heard someone's really earnest opinion on the art world and their experience as an artist. Um, So in both of your films, you do work with artists and you we, as the audience get to hear about who they are, who they were, who they wanna be. So for people who, don't often get to experience conversations with artists. How was your experience working with a really diverse group of people like Charles Gaines to people who didn't quite complete their Yale MFA?
2: Um. Well, I love working with artists because they're out of the box thinkers. And I think they've chosen a very tough path because they're filled with passion. And most artists say that All artists I've worked with have said that they have to do this like they would die Mm -hmm. if they didn't make art. And um, I don't think there's anything that connects them beyond that passion, like they're very different and I've gotten especially on this film we've really traveled a lot and a lot of the cast members have just shown up on their own dime and, you know, most artists when they don't get paid for things like that. And they also don't get paid when they loan works to museums for shows. They're always asked to kind of do things and kind of be devalued in a weird way. But they're all kind of happy to do it and communicate with each other and kind of share their stories. Um, you know, I, I had Felipe Beza, who's a brilliant artist who does it. I love him. Brilliant, New- brilliant artist. Um. We filmed him during the pandemic and I didn't meet him until after he came to a screening in New York and we were all so excited because we sort of revered Felipe and his work is just so beautiful. And he's, you know, he's young and he's in the Venice Biennale. He's going later this month and, you know, sort of shot out of the cannon already, but very much focused on kind of being truthful and doing staying true to his craft. I've become very close with Chris Watts, who I absolutely adore. All Incredible. So brilliant, mm-hmm. brilliant artist and wonderful person. And also like earnest, like there's this earnestness to these artists. What um, the artist, Eric Fischel said after he saw our, the art of making it at the Hamptons International Film Festival, he said, what I love about this film that you've captured better than any film I've ever seen is the earnestness of artists. And I think that artists, great artists are earnest and really great artists somehow manage to stay earnest even when they become really successful. And there's so much pressure on them to like produce and make bigger and bluer and whatever, you know the market calls for versus what they're trying to get out of themselves and communicate.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, I I, I do think- think Artists are like doctors, like they're all different kinds of artists but most doctors want to help people and most artists want to make something that kind of transcends time and place and
0: Mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. I think I, that's something maybe why I, I loved watching. One reason I loved watching your film so much is that one, I think it's really rare to get to see kind of the inside behind the scenes, like studio moment that you've captured with a lot of, um, the artists. Um, but just also they're so honest with you and with your, um, or with your um camera men camera people um and I think like hearing just and and there was no complaining it was just kind of like well this is how much student debt I have and this is what I this is what I really believe in what I want to accomplish um and it just I don't know I just think that it was a very rare kind of inside um understanding of kind of what they go through um Thank Thank you, George. Because that's
2: what a filmmaker wants to do. You kind of want to be in there and show people something that they couldn't typically see. So thank you. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I'd love to throw a little sub-question in. We spoke Mm -hmm. about this earlier, but you bring such unique personalities and give them a platform to kind of talk about the art world. I'd be curious to know how you approach casting when it comes to making a film.
0: So
2: you kind of throw spaghetti at the wall. You you <laughs> you you're looking. First of all, making a film is very collaborative. There's a director in this case, um, someone who is an MFA from Stanford, named Kelsey Edwards, was the director. Um, she did a wonderful job, and she you know we we all cast Allison Berg, who was a co-producer, and she's very involved in the art world, LA based, on the board of Lapman, the Mistake Room when we were looking for emerging artists, she sent us tons and tons of lists. And then Cesar Garcia Alvarez from The Mistake Room, who's so smart and poignant and wonderful in the film. He actually suggested Gisela and Felipe, and both of their stories were just so compelling. And then when they agreed to speak with us, and then when you saw them on camera, you're kind of like, bingo. Um, Kelsey found Chris Watts through a friend, and he also had never shared the story before. But it's it's kind of like it's like making a stew. You know, you add things and you taste it and you kind of add other things and you create a mosaic and hopefully the voices complement each other. We knew that we wanted to get youth and diversity. We wanted the new faces of the art world. And then you have people like Helen Molesworth, who's just so smart and mm-hmm. she's so photogenic, also. Everyone who's absolutely the films like a <laughs> TV show, this woman is a rock star. Mm-hmm. But she adds gravitas, and then, mm-hmm. you know, Stefan Simkiewicz, who's like a provocateur, but also just a whole other point of view. And Mark Glimsher, who's, you know, he's on the treetops and kind of owning it and very open about what he sees and where he is in the ecosystem. So you kind of try and have voices and also even looks because film is a visual medium. You know, you want them to look a certain way and complement each other. And, mm-hmm. um, but it's, it's an interesting thing when you're making a film like this, it's, I think it's much more difficult than doing a biopic or a story because an ecosystem, you can carve that pie a lot of different ways and Absolutely. there's no right way to do it. It's like a painting.
0: Mm-hmm. Like someone
2: says, how do you make a painting? It's like, you make a painting. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, and, and we had a, a wonderful editor named Nenev Minier, and she brought in someone she had mentored named Inez Vogelvang and they work so closely together and it's like kneading dough, just kind of shaping the story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's really
1: evident, I feel like, especially, well, in both stories, but we are talking about, George and I have been speaking about both of your films, but just the way that different scenes compare with each other and how one artist's voice then goes into a, a, a gallerist's voice and how they juxtapose, super fascinating.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, also, even your use of Jerry Gagosian's images, I mm-hmm. thought that was so smart because I think, like, of course, a lot of those things are kind of parodies um, and they're like satirical, But I do think a lot of them hold true. And even hearing from like Jerry Gagosian herself um, there, it just was super interesting to, to like, actually visually compare like conversations about people that like those memes might be kind of relating to.
2: And also people said to us, well, why did you include her in an art as an artist? And we're like, well, she is an artist. She is. Mm -hmm. She's an Mm -hmm. an artist. Mm -hmm. And then it, raises that whole conversation, like how does someone like Jerry Gagosian, who's putting all that content out essentially for free, she has an MFA from um, SFAI, which is also by chance in the film. It's like all these sort of interconnecting things. Um, how do you get compensated we all consume that content and we love it and it's juicy and it's fun and it's raw and it's fresh and it's honest but like who's paying for it it's like performance art so I think it it just her voice is super important in the film because it's kind of against the grain and most Mm -hmm. people don't understand how that happens
0: yeah yeah that's true that that's like connected to a question that I've been dying to ask you since I watched your film three years ago, but I think you do such a good job um, in both of your films staying objective and kind of just including as many opinions as you can, presenting them as truthfully as possible, um, but kind of allowing everyone to speak for themselves. And I'm sure that both of your films have, you know, created a spirited debate over many really important and complex questions about the art world. Um, about how to treat artists and how to lift them up and um, about value and price as we were talking about before. Um, So how do you think that, and and not not all documentary films like decide to take this objective route um, because obviously they have angles. Um, And so how do you think that remaining objective in filmmaking kind of helps or harms the storytelling? And then specifically in your case, how did you maintain distance when navigating such complex and like strong opinions Um, because I'm sure people kind of were dragging you in every direction.
2: So that is a very good question. And I'm going to preface it by saying I'm significantly older than you guys. (laughs) And when I grew up, I grew up in Winnipeg. My husband grew up in New York, you know, friends from all over. We all watched three news stations and it was ABC, NBC, and CBS, and you'd watch the news and you know, it was Dan Rather and you'd, you'd hear what they say and it was reporting. There was no like, I'm a Democrat, so I'm on CNN, I'm a Republican, so I'm watching Fox, this one saying this thing, this one saying. That's editorializing and it's very different mm-hmm. than reporting. And when you go to journalism school, the first thing I learned in graduate school is how to write an obituary because it's purely fact-based. There's a beginning, Mm -hmm. there's a middle and an end. Mm -hmm. And I think that a documentary filmmaker has a responsibility to kind of observe and report. I'm not doing a documentary on, you know, Muhammad Ali where you might have a point of view because the story has been told and the editorializing of it might weigh into it stylistically or whatever. I'm telling a story about an ecosystem that's very much in flux and very alive and vibrant and growing and changing. And I actually think it would be irresponsible and sort of stupid to editorialize too much. And I think it would make the film less evergreen. As a filmmaker, you want a film that can survive the test of time. And even if the film, you know, in two years feels outdated because the world's changed so much. We captured the art world during the pandemic and sort of coming out of it. And that will mm-hmm. never change. If we made statements that were too far left or too far right or too far pro-future, pro-fast, I think we'd have limited it ourselves. And I think we'd also kind of kibosh so many of the conversations that have been heated and fabulous. Like so many things come up that wouldn't come up if we had skewed too much one way or the other. Anything and I to- would al- also add that when like people look at things like the mega galleries in the art world and people are very critical, people should also look at how much free po- programming Hauser and Wirth does. Mm-hmm. and you know, how David Kordansky supported Charles Gaines scholarship and how, you know, all of these galleries are doing so much for the cities they're in and the people at the top of the pyramid are expected to do the most. They have, you know, supporting feeder galleries and showing, I'm in, I'm very involved at Hunter College in the MFA program. I mean, the last couple of years, Hauser did, uh, gave us a gallery for the MFA students. Like, we need someone who'd do that. Mm -hmm. We're all kind of, we rise and fall together. It's not like if this one does well, this can't. So I I just think it would be limiting to be too critical of one thing. Um, And it's not my place to be judgmental. It's my place to tell a story and hopefully it's interesting so people will engage in it and let them come up with their own conclusions.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: When I think that speaks to like the power of casting and the people you've brought into these different um, documentaries and how their voices are obviously very distinct from each other and they have varying opinions on the art world on what it means to be an artist. but at the same time all of these conversations I think really complement each other um, and help produce a strong throughline and message through each respective film. But I'd kind of be curious to know as you've worked both in the media and marketing landscape and have, dabbled in the art world throughout your career, what is the most important or the most challenging thing to convey about the art world in media? And then what do you think people often miss or get wrong?
2: That's a really good question. I think the most important thing to convey is that ultimately art and the art world are a place of joy and optimism and creativity and community. And I think that's a special thing. And I hope that the film comes away with saying like, you know, whatever suffering any of them do for their craft, it's not craft, it's art, but it's kind of worth it because you're doing what you wanna do. And, you know, whatever criticisms people have of the art world, it's this, It, it is unregulated and it is, crazy. But you know, in every industry there are things that aren't right that could be fixed. Like give me an industry I'll give you a problem. But I think that the art world is it's a really joyous place and I think that art is so valuable to everyone in our world. And you know, I hope it encourages people who want to have creative lives and spend their professional life talking about ideas to pursue it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think our films do do that. And I think also what comes off really clearly is like the passion that no matter where, where people kind of situate themselves in that ecosystem, people love and really care about what they're doing.
2: Mm -hmm. Um, And I
0: think that's, not necessarily the truth in every industry. And I think, yeah, the idea that it's just full of joy that makes me really excited to hopefully join it soon. Um, come on Georgia, get your
1: job. Come on. I know we're waiting. One of us,
0: (laughs) one of us is employed. The other one, not so much, but anyway, (laughs) on to the next. Um, so I think something I'm really interested to ask you, um, is how has your background in marketing? Cause I know you've spent, um, many years working, as I said, in the bio, um, as a marketer. Um, and I think that obviously you're able to kind of push your films into so many, um, different communities through your capacities as a marketer, but I'm just wondering how that connects to the actual filmmaking process and how, um, you have felt that's like helped you, um, in the past two, um, projects. Well, I think
2: your generation, the chances of you having one career and one job is very thin. I had a career that was kind of long and eclectic where I was, you know, really paid and trained to be nimble and creative and to be driven. Like you have to push things through that are complicated and you have to convince the people that your ideas are great. And you have to be good at guiding art directors and sound people and photographers, and you have to finish things on time and on budget. And they're all skills that apply to being a producer. I certainly didn't plan on this career path, um, but I think that everything that I have sort of done in the 25 or more years that led up to the career shift helped and informed me. And I think the most important thing that I learned is to sort of not give up. Like when I joined, when I started The Price of Everything and people said, well, do you know how to produce? And I was like, I just know how to get things done. And I'm not a giver-upper. Like if I say I'm gonna make a movie, I'm gonna make a movie, hopefully it will be a good movie. But I think Mm -hmm. that's what a producer does. A producer pushes Mm -hmm. things forward and brings them to fruition Mm -hmm. with a lot of help from other people.
1: That's a, that's a perfect answer. And I feel like having that attitude, motivation, and direction is super inspiring to hear as people who are kind of moving into the professional worlds. Uh, But on that note of the professional world, do you have any specific advice for young professionals looking to have a job like yours someday or a career like yours someday?
2: So I will say that the two brilliant I, three brilliant interns I've hired on this project alone, who've all gotten phenomenal experience and hands-on and I tend to just include them in everything and throw them in. They're all people who hounded me till I hired them. (laughs) (laughs) And to the point where I was like, how can I not hire them? They're so persistent, they must really want to do this. And they have all been fantastic to the point where they became production assistants. And all three of them are people I'm bringing back to continue working with me on sort of the next phase of this film and other projects. So I think no one's gonna give you something, you have to make them give it to you. Yeah. And there's a line in the film where Dave Hickey says, art's sold, it's not bought.
0: And I, I wrote think especially <laughs>
2: for your generation, You know, the jobs that you guys are looking at will have may not even exist today. Certainly my kids who are, you know, in their 20s, their careers are so different than what I would have expected and sort of more interesting and multi-layered and multi-hyphened and complex that I just think you need to arm yourselves with skills and stay hungry and stay curious and adaptable and mm-hmm. um persistent and i think that if you want to be in a creative field pursue that with a vengeance like someone said to me recently when we were at south by southwest i was talking to a musician and i said when does the pursuit of the passion become crazy like it's so <laughs> impractical that it's just crazy and he said if you ask that question you don't have enough passion you should just switch wow which I thought was a really mm-hmm. great answer. Mm-hmm. But you know, I think that when you have careers and a documentary filmmaker or an independent filmmaker is no different than an artist, you are putting yourself out there. And mm-hmm. a lot of people who are just sitting on the sidelines doing nothing or in very safe fields are gonna be so critical and they're gonna be like the armchair critic and they should have done this and they should have done that. and. it made me think a lot about the vulnerability of an artist or a gallerist where you're sort of putting yourself out there and you know thousands of people and if you're lucky hundreds of thousands or millions are going to see your work and they're going to be critical of it and most of them have no credentialization to even you know have opinions that we should all be listening to not that all opinions aren't worthwhile but like just don't be afraid to put yourself out there you're I, I think that your generation, because everything's so recorded, there's a lot of fear of failure. And like everything's got to be the best and the greatest. And, you know, even Instagrams are kind of edited and curated. And the truth is, most people who are entrepreneurs or creative, you slip. Like that's part of the process. Mm-hmm. It's very, very normal to fail. And you're yeah. always going to, you know, people are going to say no and people are going to cut you down, but you kind of can't care. And Jenna Gribben, who's in our film and is Love. an incredibly talented artist who went back and got an MFA in her late thirties at Hunter, not because she thought she needed it technically, but because kind of everyone said she should. And it's kind of when her whole career, she would say it came together. A lot of things came together then, but she's like, and now her painting is just so bold and fearless. And, you know, she there's lines waiting for her work you can't get it she has a gorgeous painting of her muse and fiance in the frick next to a whole mm-hmm. painting that's just extraordinary and like she mm-hmm. was a struggling artist not that long ago and she said like when she stopped caring what other people thought it's when it all came together so I think mm-hmm. there's that thing like just don't worry about it like A fault finder's gonna find fault in paradise and you're doing something that's a little out there. Not that we don't care about professions that are more linear, but they're safer. it's a Mm -hmm. lot to go work at an investment bank than to start a podcast or make a documentary film or, you know, run a gallery or be an artist or a songwriter. And, you know, things are kind of sugar-coated in this time not like it's it's a difficult time in the world but I think when you look at like social media and people putting Mm -hmm. their images and their careers out there they're very sugar-coated and I think you know we shouldn't be afraid don't be afraid to slip it's like not it's not those who fall off the horse it's like getting back on that matters
0: Mm -hmm. Just such good advice, and I feel like that I'm just gonna take that straight into my Friday. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, go so with that. <laughs> <laughs> they're all such good reminders, and I think, yeah, they're all such good reminders. And especially in a space that's kind of like really uncharted territory, um, and you can kind of take it in whatever direction it, you want to or you feel um, pulled to. Hearing from someone who you know is is successful and like is doing amazing things, that that's kind of just what you have to keep doing. I think. You know, it's just a really but awful I reminder. I will
2: tell you something else that's been on this film, which has been very difficult. The film's been critically received and, you know, the crowds are great and we sell out. We were the first film to sell out at the Hamptons Film Festival and um, Doc NYC. And we won an audience award at South by Southwest. And we haven't gotten the distribution deal that we like. There's been a ton of interest and some offers, but it's not what I think we should have received. And it's also you give away the rights when you sell something. So I was sort of like, rather than take a not great deal and give up everything in a film that sort of ends with the last line, maybe this is the beginning of everything. And someone like Mark Linscher saying disruptions coming and we're all going to mm-hmm. have to adapt. And someone like Helen Molesworth saying, if history history's taught us anything, it's that when there's, you know, disruption, the institution's are gonna fight back and resist. We're looking at doing something incredibly disruptive and we might, you know, we're gonna issue tokens, um, an NFT and invite people into a creative community. And a lot of the experiences and access and cool merch and stuff are gonna be offered more broadly. And it's gonna be hugely disruptive. No one's done that. And I, you know, I don't know if I'd have had the confidence to say, you know, I don't like where this is going. It just doesn't feel good. And you go to Netflix and it's just stuff and no one's gonna love and nurture this project in the Mm -hmm. same way that we are, or our community is. And let's try and create a new paradigm and shake things up a bit. And I think that's what artists have always done. And, you know, at the rightful age of 57, it feels kind of thrilling to be thinking that way.
0: Absolutely. And I think that's something that I really took away from the end of that film. Um, I was so excited when Chris Watt said, well, maybe this is actually just the beginning. Um, And I think I'm wondering from your perspective, you've spoken to so many different voices and heard so many different opinions about the trajectory of the art world. Um, And obviously we've been watching it change before our eyes. Well, forever, but especially the past two years, I feel like the change has just been really accelerated. Um, And so I'm wondering if there are one, anything, well, I guess what I really want to ask is kind of any, any place that you really see the most room for growth um, and kind of how you kind of hope that progresses in the next two, five years, whatever that is. Cause you've observed the art world from so many different angles and just heard so many different opinions. So I care most about artists. Yeah of everything
2: in the art world. Like there's something to love for everyone, but I I care Mm -hmm. most about the artists. And I think that what I hope continues to progress and where I think there's real opportunity is a little bit like what Janet Gribben did where she took it upon herself to get her work out there through social media and Mm -hmm. controlled her imaging and her branding. I think that that's really, really, really important and exciting and might allow artists who don't come from the coasts to have a broader platform. And I also think what we're looking at doing with the film through the NFTs, not just like something reactive where it's like, oh, everyone's making a a lot of money on NFTs, let's mint things and sell them, but rather like, let's create a token and the token will provide access to a community. And in this community, we might share interviews with artists. We might share cool merch. We might invite them to parties. We might, you know, shine a light on an art fair in Detroit or in Cleveland or in Santa Fe. I think that's super exciting that you're going to have these kind of metaverses and virtual creative communities where there are no limitations on access. You know, you don't need to have gone to a certain school and you don't even need to live in a certain place. And when we do art, Kind of community token, it's going to be 0.01 ETH. So it's $30. And for $30, Mm -hmm. you can show up as a screening and you might get a hat or you might get invited to a certain party or be part of a discourse or a game show or whatever it might be. And I think things like that are super exciting. And I also think people who are on museum boards and who have crazy, amazing collections, I mean, if they really care about art and artists, they want to be communicating and interacting at all levels. They don't just want to be in the treetops. It's not so fun just to, you know, go to galas and fly to openings. It's it's fun to engage at a grassroots level. And I think it will open like all of this the meta of it all is going to open that world so there's more communication between you know, young, young artists or young, young podcasters or gallerists to older people who just want to engage. I have a friend who's a funny story. His, his mother, they live in the UK and she plays bridge with someone in Omaha and her son figured out that the Warren in Omaha she plays bridge with is Warren Buffett. Like, Can you imagine <laughs> having those... It's just such a wonderful way that, like you would not have had that ability, you know, a a housewife in the UK, who's an amazing bridge player, just playing bridge with Warren Buffett. Wow. I just think that we're just beginning to have that ability to communicate across oceans and seas and, you know, generations and socioeconomic and educational barriers. And it's thrilling.
1: Absolutely. Well, it's definitely clear to both Georgia and um, me that uh, you are doing really innovative things and have just really exciting things going on in your life and have had a lot of exposure to different aspects of both the art world and also just the professional world as a whole. So I'd like to move into our signature question to kind of wrap up our conversation for the day. Um, For those of you listening, I hope by now you're aware of what our signature question is, but if you're not, Debbie, if you could have any job in the art world, what would it be? You can steal somebody else's job or devise your own dream job, but we'd be curious to know where your mind's at.
0: Or you can keep
2: your own. Or you can keep your own. (laughs) I think I would have my own five years from now. What I would like to see happen, I'm interested in a lot of things in the art world and also sort of in the cultural sphere, whatever that means. I would like to be having my own metaverse or sort of distribution channel that brings together people from all walks of life and all parts of the globe. And it's sort of creative exchange that's in the virtual and the real world. So that might be around in events and podcasts and educational series and pop-ups and food trucks, but all sort of focused on creativity and kind of artistry and fostering communities does that make sense it's kind of like where I am now if I push 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 nonstop for for five ten years yeah I think it's sort of where the I'm Canadians so I like my I always say you want to skate to where the puck is going but I feel oh, like it's going into this sort of metaverse but that the real metaverse success is going to be where it also relates to real life experiences so it brings people together it doesn't mm-hmm. just us all at home communicating alone. And I think there's huge, huge, huge potential for that in the art world and sort of in arts education. So I think Mm -hmm. I'd like to be part of that conversation. And in my dream scenario, I'd like to run like, you know, the creative metaverse.
0: (laughs) Mm. Well, as long as I'm invited, I'm all for it. (laughs) Parker and I will be there.
2: (laughs) I'll join our merry band. yes (laughs) absolutely also that it's not I always have this vision of like the museum being kicked off the pedestal Mm -hmm. and how much fun it would be if you just walked into a museum and it had exactly what it had going on but like you know you had great soundtracks roaring or you were allowed to have you know colored popcorn and pizza while you walked around and you just kind Mm -hmm. of change things up a bit. So it didn't feel so precious. Mm -hmm. Like in my metaverse, you can spill.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think that's the quote
1: of the episode or the title in my metaverse, you can
0: spill. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) It's awesome. Um, Okay. Well, Debbie, thank you so much for coming on Declassified with us today. I learned so much and I'm just so grateful um, to have had your presence here with us.
2: And thank you guys so much for having me. It was really, really fun talking with you. And it just excites me when young people are um, sort of looking at all of this through, you know, the possibilities of their own career, but also just kind of weaving it into their lives. I think that all of us benefit from seeing things differently. And that's what artists do.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. And thank you for allowing the world to experience that too, through your films. I think hearing your insights on your film and storytelling in general has just been so enlightening. Um, and I can't wait to, for everyone to hear everything that we've just talked about. And I also can't wait for everyone to watch your new film. Um, and follow it. us on Instagram. I on was the- about to make that little shout out. <laughs> Do it. So, absolutely okay. follow Debbie and her films on Instagram. She's just at Debbie Wish, W I S C H. And then um, the, at the Art of Making It film is the films Instagram. And I'm sure there'll be more um, on the NFT Web3 platform that uh, The Art of Making It is maybe or maybe not launching soon. Um, so, yeah. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. With a
1: capital M A Y B E. And Debbie, thank you again for for joining us today. We are so beyond grateful to have your voice on season one of Declassified. And thank thank you everyone for tuning in today. We'll be back next week with another episode on Friday per usual. And in the meantime, after you follow Debbie in her film's Instagram, please follow ours at declassified.pod. Check out our website, declassified potcom to gain access to a summary of the episodes with potentially unfamiliar words explained and links to the galleries, artists, and themes we talked about today. And finally, please, 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 with the cherry on top, subscribe to our podcast on your preferred streaming platform so you can get new notifications when episodes air. Thank you, thank you, thank you, and see you next time.